tongues even here are still talking about known human languages, even though sometimes it may, you sort of squint your eyes and it doesn't look like it, but it, whenever he gets to 20, 21, et cetera, and the translation thing, it's clearly still a language that people know. What Paul is simply trying to do is say, don't, don't play the game of who's got the better spiritual gift, because that undermines the work of the gospel. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. I'm Nancy Guthrie. Help Me Teach the Bible is a production of the Gospel Coalition, sponsored by Crossway, a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracts. Learn more at crossway.org. This is part two of a conversation I began with Dr. Greg Lanier on the book of 1 Corinthians. Dr. Lanier, you've helped us a lot with a lot of challenging topics, but like now we're getting to the really hard stuff in 1 Corinthians, so we appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us on that. Yeah, I think a meeting just came up, and so I've you got to go. Gotta ju- yeah, I got to bounce. Sorry. Um, uh, no, it'll be good. It'll be good. Okay, good. We are on First Corinthians chapter eleven, and the heading is head coverings. Mm-hmm. So I think by the fact that there are very few people in our circles who actually cover their head to go to church would right. say that we have decided something about this passage. But perhaps what's most helpful to us is if you help us understand why maybe we've landed there or you know or why some folks haven't perhaps or why some folks haven't so help us with this uh command regarding head covering yeah sure and and just uh if folks are just joining to bring them up to speed one of the things i was trying to articulate in the last installment is paul is walking his way through a whole bunch of basically raging issues in the corinthian church and what's so instructive about that for us is that he gives us, in my view, sort of a three-step process. The first step is identify the core theological principle at play. Sometimes it's Old Testament stuff. Sometimes it's the nature of Jesus and so forth. Uh, so that's step one. Step two, step three, and then I'll come back to step two. Step three is what's the specific thing he's addressing? And for instance, in this case, it would be head coverings. It could be the man who is, has his father's wife. And then the middle step, step two, is what does Paul instruct them to do? In light of the theological foundation, what does he say they should do with this issue? All three of those steps, I think, are really instructive for us because we can diagnose our own situations with that same grid. You got a new issue pop up. Where do I go in the Bible to address this? And then what am I going to do with it? This one's kind of, it's a thorny passage, obviously. The thing that makes it so challenging is that Paul is speaking about a local situation that is foreign to us. You got women shaving their heads. You have some sort of symbol of authority on their heads. Mm-hmm. He, he says something about long hair is good for a woman. It's her glory. It's her covering. But long hair for men is a disgrace. Okay, well, what is that about? So do I need to chop off my man bun? Not, no offense. Um, you can probably scratch that part. Uh, and so, so we, we face these challenges. What exactly is he talking about? And so that's the local issue. But what you notice as you read through it is that it's actually a very immensely theological passage. He goes back to, in verse 3, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So I'll There's that, that theology you so were telling the, us. Yeah, he says, okay, whatever I'm about to tell you, I want, I want it to flow from this idea mm-hmm. that the head of Christ, that God is the head, the God the Father is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of the husband, 
the husband is the head of the wife. And even though he doesn't quote it, he's very clearly getting that from Genesis, uh, Genesis 1 and 2. He goes there in lots of other places, and in fact, lots of other thorny passages like 1 Timothy 2. And so he's drawing on creation language. He's drawing on the orderliness that because God is a God of order. Uh, that God has seen good, that it's good to structure his creation this way. Now, we may not like that, but we just, that's what Paul says. You may not like that, but it's not me saying it, it's Paul saying it, right? So we have to kind of go there. The next thing he says that's related is verse 7. The husband or the man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. That's a thorny issue Mm -hmm. we can come back to. He's still riffing on the same thing. I think probably most helpfully in verse 10, he says, because of the angels. Uh, and I think uh, you could probably just leave it there. I'm, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's one of the most obscure things that are in, that's in the New Testament. I think there is an angle on that. And then finally, verse 16 is verse 16 is one of those great, you know, Paul is not inclined to be um, warm fuzzies. Uh, we may not like it, but he says, look, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no oh, such Oh, we practice. don't know anyone like yeah. that, do we? Nor do the church of God. He's like, look, you can, you can complain about this, but okay, this is, this is what we do. He's not really concerned about whether you like it or not. So mm. facts don't care about your feelings. Anyway, <laughs> so he goes back to those basic principles. His argument then is something like this. And, and as a sort of general caveat, I think there, there could be legitimate ways to arrive at a different point. And so if, if someone listening is in a a certain camp where maybe they they turn the the knobs in a more conservative direction and they want to say, no, we actually do think women should wear a a shawl or something like that. I I can completely acknowledge there. I think there's a way to get there. I think this is is one of those passages where we have to use some sanctified reason to kind of make sense. So I'll just caveat it with that. So what's what's going on here? What's the local situation? Well, what appears to be going on is that you have at Corinth, as in the entire ancient world, you have a general cultural practice where women, especially married or engaged women, cover their heads. So uh, it signals something about signals their something. marital status. Exactly. In fact, in my little notes that I have a whole bunch of pictures. So you, mm-hmm. We have paintings, carvings from both Jewish and Greco-Roman mm-hmm. artifacts, pottery and that kind of thing, where the women almost all have a head covering. And, you know, in fact, there's one where it has uh, the parents taking a soon-to-be-wed husband and wife, and the, and the young girl has a head covering, whereas a little girl wouldn't. She wouldn't cover her head. And so there's something about the shawling of the head that signals that you have a particular social status, and particularly a status with respect to uh, your husband. Okay, that's not what we have in most circles in, say, America or in England or what have you, but a lot of places we still have that. And in fact, we have a lot of international students here at RTS who come from cultures where that's what they do. You know, pretty much the entire Middle East does this, right? Mostly due to the influence of Islam, but some of it's just cultural. That like this is how you show propriety. This is how you show that you're a respectable woman. Uh, it's it's not much different than you know when you go from being 15 years old as a guy uh, to, to maybe make it less contentious uh, to being to, or, or let's say you're in high school and you can get away with wearing you know uh, ripped up shorts and you know. Uh, band t-shirt what have you but you when you show up first day at your new job in new york unless it's google you're probably gonna <laughs> what you wear signals a maturity yes. so 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 we still do this with clothing mm-hmm. today it's all crazy and it changes very quickly but there's still a sense of propriety and decorum when it comes to dress so that that actually is still something that we can have a, a bridge there we're listening to half the conversation because we we're missing a lot of the back and forth that paul has had with the church at corinth 
But what appears to be having, happening here at Corinth is there appears to be, because the women, not all of them, but some of the women are buying into worldly thinking, buying into whatever the new way of thinking is, whatever, however you show that you're a liberated woman. This is not a new thing. This happened back then. We have a lot of historical evidence for that. What they were doing was either unshawling themselves and saying, I'm not playing by your rules. I'm tearing down the patriarchy, hashtag, you know, whatever. Or in some cases, maybe even shaving their head to say we are visibly flaunting your authority, maybe even my own husband's authority. That is a, a known thing. So Paul is specifically addressing that, and that's it. I think there's pretty, pretty clear that that's what's going on, that the women were doing things to, to the place where they show that they're under authority, namely how they adorn their head, to flaunt the authority. And so he says, that can't be. He says, basically, don't buy it. Don't buy into that liberationist impulse because how you carry yourself sends a message. It sends a message that you are under the God-ordained, what God has said is a healthy way for marriage and perhaps you know the broader church to function. You can read a passage like this and say, Paul is this crazy misogynistic. He hates women. And the problem with that is if you turn a few chapters back in chapter 7, when he deals with marriage and sex, he says something very profound. He says, men need to give their wives sexually what he owes to her because she has authority over his body. And he says vice versa. Women should give to their husbands what they owe to them sexually because he has authority over her. You would expect Paul, if he's this just massive, misogynistic, hateful person, to just say, husbands, you can mm-hmm. do whatever you want to to your wives. In fact, he leads with the wife has authority over her husband's body. In fact, he uses the A word. <laughs> he uses authority, which is mind-blowing. That's one place you could go to kind of balance that out. Basically what he says is when you're gathered for worship, when you're when you're praying or prophesying, the women need to cover their heads. That's his point. Uh, they need to adopt the visible symbol of their posture, that I am in a good way again. I am under the spiritual leadership of my husband, and he is under the spiritual headship of Christ, who is under the headship of, of the Father. And so that's the basic principle, and I'll get to the kind of conclusion. He says, look, it's wrong for someone to flaunt these things. Uh, and then he says, actually, you know, in verse 14, doesn't nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace, but if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. Her hair is given to her for a covering. That bit does not nature itself. Mm-hmm. To me, that's an interesting kind of foothold. The cultural conventions of our time in the sort of mid-Roman era, time of life and he's writing in, the way we signal these things is hair length. And that's why guys mm-hmm. had short hair and women mm-hmm. had long hair. And you see all the artwork, that's how mm-hmm. it always looked. That's his point. It's like you should dress or comport yourself in the public gathering in a way that respects that Mm -hmm. to show that I'm a woman and particularly a woman who's married versus I'm a man and therefore Mm -hmm. I should not reverse those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. If we parachuted Paul to 2019 Central Florida and we said, okay, Paul, we've read 1 Corinthians 11, therefore we all know that women have to have hair that's at least 15 inches long (laughs) and they all have to have a shawl, I think you'd say you're crazy. Because that doesn't be, signal. That doesn't mean anything right yes. now. Yes. Uh, other than you're probably kind of backwards and weird. One of the things I think can become a risk for us as we, particularly in America, read Scripture, as we read it through our own cultural lens. But if you go to East Africa, if you go to Southeast Asia, 
the norms might be completely different. And certainly, you know, I spent a lot of time in Kenya. Generally speaking, within certain tribes and so forth, in certain parts of uh, Kenyan culture, women don't typically have, maybe not even have any hair, or it'll be really short. And so it would actually be offensive. I mean, imagine exporting a gospel. You, you parachute into South Central Nairobi and say, okay, we want you to come to Jesus. What that means is all you ladies need to grow your hair out. Like, that would be insane. I think Paul would say that's that makes no sense at all. You've completely missed what I've tried to say. What he is saying is whatever in your context signals that you are under authority. And in fact, what it, what it really says there is a wife ought to have an authority on her head. It doesn't even say symbol. It just says an authority. Whatever that means, and again, in Corinth it meant this, but it may be something different in Ireland, maybe something different in Malaysia, I don't know then do that to show that you respect the orderliness of God. So it goes back to God ultimately, which raises the question of the angels, because I know you're going to ask me about the angels. If you look at both the Old Testament and Jewish literature, angels are observing worship. Mm -hmm. uh, they are not only around the throne room of God, but they are watching things on earth. And you get, you get tastes of this in the New Testament as well. And, and also how we relate to angels. Yeah, I think about angels. Peter talking about salvation being on being a thing on which angels look. Yeah, exactly. And so they're clearly involved in what's going on uh, with God's people. And so uh, the most compelling way to kind of take that part of verse 10 is not only do you need to show this godly ordering of relationships, he says angels are watching. I think his argument is if they looked on and saw us calling ourselves the church of God, but completely overthrowing God's created order, they're going to be impacted by that as well. Because, by the way, they've already tried that, or at least some of them, right? Yeah. They, they tried, Satan the and his minions, uh, they tried overthrowing the divine order and it didn't go well. And which actually, if you think about that, that's mind-blowing, mm -hmm. that our worship has, at our little old church up in Lake Mary, has cosmic implications. Mm -hmm. And in fact, how we do it reflects the very creative rationale of God and how that impacts angels. Like that's a that's a pretty Im impressive way to think about what's going on in worship. And if that's the case, then by all means, we should conduct ourselves in a reverent way. And so what that looks like day to day, I mean, it depends on where you are. But I think most of us sort of intuitively know, it's almost like we sort of know it when we see it, mm -hmm. that in our particular context, there's certain cues that quote unquote nature gives us to show God, Christ, husband, mm -hmm. wife, and how that, that we are submitting to God in this way. But well, I, don't, you don't, I don't necessarily want to prescribe what that is because right. it's going to change. Well, um, when you began in our first episode on 1 Corinthians and you gave kind of a statement about what 1 Corinthians is about, you talked about it being a book of wisdom on, on determining these things. Mm -hmm. And he's applying it to many different things. But it seems to me... Perhaps the biggest challenge of the wisdom he's presenting here in terms of the way it goes against our modern day culture is, you know, we just get this message of you got to be you and, you know, don't try to please other people. You just have to express yourself. Right. This seems to me to be a message to us to be, no, you need to be considering how some ways you present yourself, how it impacts the larger body of Christ. Right and even angels, that you are sending some signals about your willingness to submit to Christ in many different ways. Yeah. And actually, you do need to be conscious about how you come across. Yeah. Is I mean, that taking it too no, far? I think that's right. I mean, another way I, you could maybe phrase it, each of these issues that Paul is addressing involves other people. Mm -hmm. And 
Paul is saying the work of Christ is not just about you. That, I think, is one of the key insights that we have imbibed in an increasingly individualistic era. This is not new. I mean, we've overly individualized the gospel. Say It's just about me walking the aisle, praying the prayer, and getting right with God. You don't find that at all in 1 Corinthians. What you find is a profound otherness Mm -hmm. that all of the ethics, all the thinking about how we live and the work of Jesus sort of flowing through is profoundly about other people and Mm -hmm. how we show love to other people with how I'm acting. Paul's vision and the whole Bible's vision of the church is what happens to me impacts you. What happens to you when you're doing well with the Lord or when you're not doing well with the Lord impacts me, that we're not on an island. I'm not doing well unless you're doing well. Like hearing about your faith makes me feel, makes me grow. My what, what becomes interesting about 1 Corinthians is how as he's applying scriptural truth and the work of Jesus to these issues, he's always directing us towards loving those with whom we share this oneness in Christ. And so mm-hmm. that I think is a key thing as you're working through it with the group is to constantly say, okay, how can we love you? How does this help us love each other better? Mm-hmm. Why is fighting against my own sin and even church discipline? No one likes talking about it. I know it's hard. But even that is actually deeply about how that dynamic of unchecked sin impacts all of us. Mm-hmm. Well, let's jump to 12, 13, and 14. Oh, Okay. <laughs> if we must. don't act don't act so excited about it greg no no it's interesting the reason it's, it's i understand you, because it's hard yeah. and because you and i both recognize that we'll have listeners to the, this podcast who see a lot of these things very differently mm-hmm. and so maybe we can't anticipate that we are going to first please everybody or or cover it as broadly or deeply as some might like but Let's just do our best sure, to yeah. provide some helps for those of us who are, we're thinking about teaching this and we've got to figure out, wow, how yeah. am I going to present this in my church, mm-hmm. in my denomination? Maybe even think those ways. So I wonder if a good way to start might be just some definition of terms. Okay. Would you give me a definition, first of all, just for spiritual gifts, then maybe give me one for prophecy and give me one for tongues. Okay. If I had to pick a section in the New Testament, uh, not to get myself in trouble, but uh, I'm not in the camp of like, I have 100% certainty about every single thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, if I had to pick a section in the New Testament where I have the most open questions, it's probably this one. Okay. I think that's helpful for us as teachers to know. Yeah. Someone who's immersed in Greek and New Testament, that if we are struggling with this and we feel like, I'm not sure I can come down and say, this is what it's clearly teaching, that we're, we probably have a lot of good company. Yeah. It doesn't mean that I want to say nothing about it, but it means mm-hmm. at least I'm, I'm trying to humble. To be, You're a little humble yeah, about your conclusions, cheerful. right? Okay, I can see how people can come to a different position, uh-huh. and I don't have yeah. to vilify them as somehow right. losing the gospel or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so even just modeling that, even saying, look, I don't have all the answers here. Uh, I think there are some things that are clear. I think there's some things that aren't clear, and um, that gives us some space to agree to disagree and still go to the potluck afterwards right (laughs) so that Um, sounds like one approach for teachers as you approach this yeah what is clear yeah and to maybe major on those things and tread lightly where it's less clear i mean that would be my that would be my approach yeah now i mean there are some who want to always have 100 percent certain about everything right that's not me Um, okay i wish anyway in terms of the definition spiritual gifts it comes from charisma is a spiritual gift something i'm good at naturally or is it something 
I'm only good at it because of some supernatural provision yeah, by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's better than the name. I mean, spiritual gift is the English way to capture it, but it's actually just gift. Whenever you see that, it's just a certain noun for gift. It already tells you something, that it's not natural to you. You weren't born with it, right? So you can't boast in it. It was given to you. So because it's a gift, it comes from outside of you. The word relates to the sort of cluster of words related to grace and gift. And so it's a, something that has been graced to you by God, not necessarily innate. It's not even necessarily something you like. Uh, I mean, you don't like all your gifts. We don't get to choose them. Yeah, you don't get to choose them. Uh, it may not be your favorite thing to do. You know, a lot of folks who have the gift of hospitality, it wears them out and they hate cleaning them afterwards, right? And so it doesn't mean you shouldn't use the gift just because it's a struggle for you. And so it is something uh, given by God through the Holy Spirit. You would go to like Ephesians 4 for that. And so it's not just a skill or a talent. The other thing that he, he makes clear here, especially in chapter 12, there, there is a variety. That's one key, but the same spirit. So it's one God, but a variety of gifts. And then he says, each Christian, verse 7, to each is given a manifestation of the spirit, which is a fancy way of saying a spiritual gift. Mm -hmm. And notice he says, for the common good. And so Mm -hmm. the other thing you need to think about in terms of defining what a spiritual gift is, it's not just something you do on your own in isolation. As we mentioned just a second ago, it's deeply other-oriented. The whole point of the gift is for it to bless someone else. That it's fruitful in the body of Christ. To further God's kingdom? Yeah, Would that exactly. be a way to say and to, it? And to build up the body. And he'll uh-huh. say that elsewhere. It's to, to edify and encourage others. And so even when, she, when you def- define a gift that way, that already removes some things off the table. It removes the idea that tongues, and I'll define them in a minute, that tongues are just about you and God. Because okay. gifts don't function that way. Uh-huh. They're, they're almost not about that. So you're saying about, to talk about tongues as a private prayer language yeah, might so the be off the that, table? Yeah, that a tongue is sort of this ecstatic... And I don't mean this in a, a pejorative way, but sort of incoherent. It's not a known language. It's mm-hmm. just your private prayer language mm-hmm. with God. And, and to call that the spiritual gift would actually be against what Paul is talking about. Without impugning that phenomenon, uh, it certainly wouldn't fit the bill in, in what he's describing. If there are tongues, and we'll come to that, they have to be to for the purpose of blessing others. It's not just your own private thing. So uh, that's probably the first thing or the, a big thing in terms of defining gifts. Maybe before we go on to defining prophecy sure, yeah. or more on tongues, maybe you should give us a sense for, you know, chapter 13, we have always heard it alone. And mm-hmm. we think of it mainly as, you know, something that's read at a wedding, that this is about love relationship between a man and a woman mm-hmm. or even just us loving the body. But what is its context in the midst of this conversation about spiritual gifts and then prophecy in tongues? How do we, when we're teaching First Corinthians 13, what's the key to getting it right yeah, yeah, I mean, in terms of its on, context? On the one hand, it's, it's sort of like the Ruth passage, like wherever you go, I yes. will go. And it's like, don't read that at weddings. So like, well, I mean, well, but there is something there about yeah, commitment, I mean, it's right? nice and it, and it plays well. It's like, I don't want to completely rain on people's parades. Yeah. I wouldn't say, in fact, at a wedding I'm doing coming up where they pick Are you going to read it? Yeah. Okay. It's like, all right, fine. Okay. Some hills you don't die on. But uh-huh. um, is it the, the best use of it? Maybe not. You know, verse 1 actually makes it pretty mm-hmm. clear what it's about. In many respects, the intrusion of the big number 13 and the verse number 1 is you know, certainly later. It was added later. And so from Paul's perspective, he probably wouldn't have seen a big break there. From gifts and tongues straight into more about gifts and tongues. Mm-hmm. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and have not love. So even though it kind of feels like this love poem, it actually has a very important point. He's saying, look, 
and in many respects, chapter 13 is the key to chapter 12 and 14. Uh, mm-hmm. what, they're, what they're messing up at Corinth, which, by the way, goes all the way back to the prior discussion of chapters 1, 2, and 3 about how they're, they're buying into worldliness and worldly thinking, is that they are, in effect, competing over gifts. They're saying, mm-hmm. this person has a better gift than this person. Mm-hmm. This person speaks in tongues, but this person just does this and you know, keeps the nursery or what have you. And he's saying, look, even if, even if I spoke in the tongues of men, even if I had an angelic tongue, he doesn't, mm-hmm. he's not saying that they exist. He's saying, even if I did that, but I don't have love, if I'm doing it selfishly, if I'm doing it mm-hmm. showing off, if I'm doing it as a sense of one-upsmanship or I'm a higher-ranking member of my local church or what have you, but I have not loved, then I'm just making noise. That's his point. Mm-hmm. Without love, love in the Bible is an other love. If I'm not loving others in my exercise of these gifts, then I'm doing it wrong. That's what chapter 13 is about. So it actually fits quite nicely yeah. in his, his strategy here. Prophecy. This is a big debate. Um, Let's read 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. It's telling us to desire it, so I guess we need to know what it is. What is prophecy? That is a very important question. There's basically two schools of thought. It's very easy to get down in the weeds, and there's a lot of ink that has been spilled, a lot of friendly fire that comes with this question. One option is... It's prophecy sort of as the Old Testament prophets did it. That is, God is directly speaking through you. It's new information from God that has some kind of binding quality that we should listen to and we should put into practice. It's one view. The idea is that somehow in some respects that's continuing. And would be infallible? Would that uh, be the right word to describe it? Ask, right, yeah. okay. Depends on who you ask. Okay. Um, and it may be all, maybe there's a sort of middle ground. Mm-hmm. The so if that's one extreme position, that it's essentially the same basic thing that Isaiah was doing, the sort of opposite conclusion is it's basically preaching. And what I mean by that is if you look at what the prophets actually do, apart from a smidgen here and there where they're forecasting, and for lack of a better term, what's about to happen, which they do do that, the vast majority of what they were is just good old not good old Baptist hell, hell and brimstone preachers. What are they doing? They are preaching Deuteronomy. Exactly. They're going yeah. to Hezekiah. They're going to whomever, and they're saying, "Look." And they're drawing out the implications. Exactly. They're, it's almost like they're simply just expositing the Torah. That's what the prophets mainly did. So, actually, the idea of prophesying today means Nostradamus, right? You're making predictions about who's going to win the football mm-hmm. game. That's actually, by and large, not what the Old Testament prophets were doing at least as their main job description. Did they look forward to captivity and exile in, those, in the Messiah? Yes, but that wasn't the bread and butter of what they were doing. They were, they were good old gospel preachers in the, in the Old Testament. So the other view of prophecy, uh, at least as Paul's using it here, is that it's something like that. It's you're proclaiming the word of God, applying it to his people, and that that's the essence of prophecy. And then there's kind of a middle ground, which is sort of, if you're aware, there's this uh, Calvinistic continuationist movement where... Folks are reformed broadly, but uh, believe in certain kinds of ongoing uh, special spiritual gifts. And so that camp generally says, look, there is this newness of prophetic reception from God, that I am receiving a message from God, but it's not necessarily binding. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying, thus saith the Lord. So that's kind of a middle position. 
you're going to have to talk to your pastor. You're going to have mm-hmm. to do some reading to kind of figure out where you're going to land because the word doesn't tell you. You have to bring in a lot of other theology. In terms. Are there any resources you would point us to as we're trying to understand the different positions? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I think there actually is a uh, three views or four views uh-huh. book on the this kind of activity has stopped camp. I've always appreciated Richard Gaffin's uh, mm-hmm. perspectives on Pentecost. It deals with tongues, but it deals with this as well. But if you want to approach it from a different perspective and get their arguments, you know, Wayne Grudem is one of the key figures in, in the discussions of, of the kind of middle position. Uh, Sam Storms as well, who's kind of broadly mm-hmm. in a uh, reformed camp. And there's probably some others. Oh, those are all very helpful. Not that I'm necessarily commending them, but that's where right. you could go to get the kind of the best to hear their view of that position. Yeah. So, and, and, and go to your pastor and say, what, what do you think about this? Yeah. Whatever the prophesying is, and I, and I do lean in the direction that it's a, a declaration of what God has already said as opposed to some new revealing of what God has said. He says that's more important, that kind of proclamation. And he, he explains why. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. Now, that may make it seem like it's some sort of ecstatic language that has no real uh, intelligibility. But he goes on to describe how the reason why it's unintelligible is that it's not in the language that you know. You know, if you started speaking in, in Mandarin, I wouldn't understand you. His point here is that prophesying is intelligible to everyone, whereas tongues may not be. In verse 3, maybe this is probably the best place to, to configure what he's getting at. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So again, the gift is for others. Tongues are so divisive, just like baptism is. You know, those are probably the two things that we divide on the most in the sort of modern, broadly evangelical world. If you look at Acts, it's, I think, 100% clear that it is a an intelligible language that you didn't naturally learn. Because you had all these people from all over the world mm-hmm. who were there for that Feast of Pentecost. Right. And, and, other, and, and later on with Cornelius. And, and, and they're hearing the gospel in their own language. Exactly. I mean, it says two things give it away. Well, first, the word mean, means dialect. I mean, it means your physical tongue or it means a kind of actual known linguistic dialect. Uh, so that's even the word sort of tips tips its hand. Um, second, you have the verb that's used is a word that is only used for intelligible speech. In mm. fact, so so you have them, the, the tongues of fire come down, they all quote unquote speak in tongues. That word mm-hmm. for speak is not the normal word for speak. It's a, um, it's kind of a, a fancy word. And a couple of verses later, it's the exact same word that's used when Peter stands up and starts speaking. And so it's clearly intelligible language. And the third thing is they all hear the language that they know, but those largely Galilean Jewish background guys shouldn't have known Persian or whatever. So uh, Acts is 100% clear that the tongues are intelligible language. 1 Corinthians 14 is appears to be the fly in the ointment, uh, where, as I mentioned in verse 2, you're speaking not to men but to God. Uh, this idea that the tongue is just speech that is not intelligible in verse 8, like a bugle giving an indistinct sound. Verse 9, if if you're with your tongue, you utter speech that is not intelligible and so forth. So a lot of folks look at that and say, okay, this is some sort of angel language. It's a heavenly language. It's not a real human language. And it's just syllables concatenated together. And that's what I do when I speak in tongues. And I've, and I've been in churches where that happens. And when I, I was overseas in Auckland and I was at a, I didn't know, I didn't even know what these words meant. I was young, but, um, I was at what I later learned was a Pentecostal church, and they started doing these things like, what on earth is going on? It was very shocking to me. And so I was actually in the position 
of the guy in verse 21. Outsiders coming in, and I, I've experienced that. I was like, what on earth is going on? These people are crazy, right? Uh, at least that's what I, as an outsider, felt. And so the way I look at verse or chapter 14 to kind of, okay, are tongues special, charismatic angel languages, or are they known, are they actual human languages? Paul goes to, as he has over and over again in 1 Corinthians, he goes to sort of rock-solid truth. The way he explains all this is in verse 21. He says, in the law, which, by the way, it's interesting because it's actually Isaiah, uh, it is written, by the people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me. And then he says, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, for believers. That all, it all seems very com- convoluted. What he's saying is this, based on tongues according to Isaiah, tongues according to the word of God, this speaking foreign known languages, such as the language of the Babylonians when they roll into town, speaking a foreign language is actually an eschatological sign of judgment. It's saying... The gospels, that the message is being proclaimed to the people of God by a foreign language, and they're not listening. So the judgment comes in, you hear a foreign language and you don't understand. And that's why Pentecost is so powerful, because they hear the foreign language and they do understand. And that's how they hear the gospel. So his point is, the reason why he's saying tongues as an intelligible language are not nearly as important as prophecy is that they become a sign of judgment on the person who can't understand them. Not a helpful thing. And in fact, unbelievers come in and they see this and, and it becomes a kind of an inaccessible thing that they that therefore sort of stands in judgment over. And he says, so therefore, if you're going to speak in a tongue, it has to be translated. Just speaking in a tongue does no good for anyone. It has to be made intelligible. Otherwise, it brings judgment on the person who can't respond to it. So he, and he goes to Isaiah to kind of prove that out. So it's complicated. So no doubt you could easily in a hour-long Bible study on Thursday morning get completely <laughs> caught in the mud yeah. here. And so if I were trying to strategically make my way through mm-hmm. this, I think what you suggested, defining those terms, trying to frame that tongues even here are still talking about known human languages, mm-hmm. even though sometimes it may, you sort of squint your eyes and it doesn't mm-hmm. look like it, but it, whenever he gets to 20, 21, et cetera, and the translation thing, it's clearly it's still a language that people know. What Paul is simply trying to do is say, don't... Don't play the game of who's got the better spiritual gift, because that undermines the work of the gospel. So we get to chapter 15, and I have to tell you, wow, this this chapter is so important. This is important for us facing life and death. And as I think about this chapter, I think about how most of my life, I thought the trajectory of the Christian life was, I choose Christ now, become a Christian, then I go to heaven when I die. Right. And And I think... probably become an angel. Uh, that might have been in yeah. there, but certainly, you know, I didn't understand a resurrected and renewed earth. Mm-hmm. And clearly through most of my Christian life, I never gave a thought to how is my eternal existence after I come back with Christ and he calls my body from the grave and I become united once again, body and soul, but now in a resurrected glorified body like Christ, how is that existence going to be different than what we would call theologically the intermediate state or the way paul describes it in second corinthians away from the body 
but with Christ. At home with the Lord. Right. But I think many people have just not thought through this. Sure. Oh, it's And I would assume, <laughs> however, when you get to 1 Corinthians, you're, you're as a teacher, presented with this incredible opportunity to make these things yeah, clear. Yeah, I mean, in this, you know, almost 60 verses, you're like, what, how could I even cover this, right? So it's almost too much good to cover. And so just to kind of give you the, the high-level take on it, the first 20 verses or so, he's arguing for the theological necessity of the resurrection. It's just a beautiful—he he begins by quoting this apostolic tradition of what's the essence of the gospel, and the resurrection is front and center. If there is no resurrection, we should pack it up and go home. So he starts there, because apparently the Corinthians, because of whatever worldly philosophy that bears some resemblance to, like, Platonism, that the body is bad, soul is good, and we don't know exactly what they were buying into, but whatever the case, they were denying the resurrected body. Somehow body is—that's just New Ageism today. There's no, without a resurrection of the body of Christ, we are just—we might as well just go home. Let's just pack it up. So he starts there. And then he shifts to the question of, okay, if, if the resurrection is true because it happened to Jesus, what is it going to look like? And he asks the question, with what kind of body am I going to be raised in? Which, I mean, my kids ask that question. We're going to have we're going uh, to have candy in heaven. We're going to have ice cream in heaven mm-hmm. and so forth. And it's kind of hard to answer that without you just sort of completely ruining all their hopes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but giving them a better hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he says in verse 35, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And so it's, what he do, then does just blows everyone's mind, right? And it's extremely complicated, in, but in a good way. What he basically does in my reading is he, he's trying to describe the indescribable. I mean, how do you describe the resurrected body? No one's experienced it but one person. And what do we get in the Gospels when we see them experience the risen Lord? Hmm. It doesn't quite fit our categories. I mean, he... He can withhold knowledge of who he is, mm-hmm. and they mistake him yeah. for people. They don't but know. he eats. But he eats, but he can just show up places. Yeah. And then he goes, it's like, where is he right now? He went up to heaven, so where is he? And so already it stretches any ability for us to even imagine what is getting at. And so what Paul, I think, is trying to do is saying, I'm going to do my best to give you a taste of what the body is, but what I want to do is emphasize that it is a body. You're not a, You're not just an energy force field floating around. You're not even an angel because angels don't have bodies. You actually have a body because theologically it's really important that he had a body and he's the first mm-hmm. resurrected one. So all that hangs together. Again, theology has the basis for what he's doing here. And he and he gives, in my way of sort of slicing and dicing it, he gives basically three pictures trying to describe what it's going to look like. The first one is this seed plant uh-huh. analogy, which is my favorite one. It's the easiest to understand. What he essentially says is, he says, your body is like the seed you plant in the dirt, which, I mean, that, that's a very nice metaphor, the body going down to die. He says that seed has, if you look at, so let's say, you, you know, my, my kids plant seeds and we grow stuff and they usually die in a couple of days. Um, you, you pick a single seed and you plant it and it grows into a plant. And could you say, okay, that final plant, is that the same plant as the seed? And the answer to that is yes. I mean, there is an essential integrity between mm-hmm. those two. It didn't come from some other seed. It came from that specific seed. And so the seed analogy says, look, there is continuity between what goes into the earth and what comes out of it, that you are the same person. You're the same being, so to speak. So when but I've what tried... changes is you have the breakdown of the one and the full completion yeah. when it emerges. And I use in class... Uh, you look at the sequoia tree being one of the biggest that exists. It comes from this microscopic little seed. 
So that's just, and so it's the same sequoia, but it's been just mm-hmm. completely transformed. So it's the same thing, but you, it's gone from less to to great in, in a way that he can't even explain. So, mm-hmm. that, so that's his first picture. Somehow in a way that we can't imagine. God is going to take this dust. He's going to gather up the dust of our body, whether it was planted in the ground or spread in the sea, mm-hmm. and it's going to be our DNA. Yeah. And he's going to gather from that, and he's going to somehow fashion from that a glorious body like Christ's body right. that's fit to live forever. A beautiful analogy. The next one is this heaven and earth analogy. And he says, okay, there's heavenly bodies and there's earthly bodies. And it's a bit of a it's a bit of a complicated analogy, but you're going to go from flesh and earthiness, which still has a kind of glory, because he said elsewhere mm-hmm. in First Corinthians, you have the glory of God in mm-hmm. you, but it's going to be even better. You're going to be transformed in this mm-hmm. way that he sort of just takes us to this idea and then leaves it there. And then the final, he goes from first Adam to last Adam, so original Adam mm-hmm. to Jesus, and he says, look, the first Adam was from the dust, he was from the earth. He, he was filled with a soul, but he was just—he was clearly less than what the second Adam was. And so then, at the, the sort of turning point late in the passage, he smashes all those together, and he sort of takes the seed analogy and he says, "Look, you were sown perishable dust, mm-hmm. glorious but still earthy, and you're going to be raised." Switching the imagery mm-hmm. to resurrection, imperishable, glorious, and so forth. And he sort of leaves it there. And so what I tell my kids, like, you know, the Bible tells us a lot about what the resurrected state is going to be like, but it doesn't tell us all the details. I don't know. If it doesn't answer be, all the questions we would uh, like answered. I don't know if I'm going to be taller, handsomer. I don't know if we're <laughs> going to have ice cream. I don't know. That wasn't Paul's point because he's describing the indescribable. But, but whatever it is, it's not just, you know, Nancy Guthrie 2.0. It's something far beyond what you can even imagine. And so a lot of folks, one of the, I think, really, especially if you, if you have a, a, a group of folks that you're teaching this to, one opportunity is you can deal with some of the real key issues we're facing today in terms of disability, in terms of the dignity of people who are born with genetic or other kinds of brokenness, because many people, they have this idea of what normal is, what functioning is, and then they say, okay, the resurrected body is just sort of an, a more tweaked, fitter, happier, more like Brad Pitt version of that. And that's not at all what Paul is saying. He says, look, what you are now and whatever whatever God has put in your life is is just the seed. We have no idea what we're really going to be like. That sort of levels the playing field because I think mm-hmm. folks who deal with chronic disease or you know uh, congenital things can be very hurt by the idea that I'm normal, that person's um. not normal, the resurrected body is just going to be normal. It's like, no, no none it's more of us than are that. normal. We're all flesh. We're all dust. Just some of us, it's more visibly broken than others. And all of us are going to be transformed. So that sort of cuts through the question of like, okay, how old will I be in, in my resurrected body? Will I still have this? Like, none of that's really on the table because you have no idea what you're going to be. You're going to be conformed to the image of Christ and, and perfected in a way that we don't even have an analogy for today. So I think it's a better place to take it because there's a lot of freight that gets brought to it. Um, and, and sort of studying it afresh, I think, can help deal with that. So, Well, Greg, why don't we close this way? When we finish teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians to whoever we're teaching it to, what do we hope the impact has been on those we've taught? In some respects, there's going to be chapters that are not easy discussions, and people will be offended, and you have to take 
you have to sort of do some digging. And so all of the kind of ethical, moral issues and women and those kinds of things are, they're loaded topics. And so you don't want to necessarily land there in some big argument about head coverings. Perhaps the nice thing is that uh, apart from the, the concluding chapter, the thrust of First Corinthians lands in the resurrected body. And so if you want to sort of wrap it all up, that's a pretty good place to land, which, by the way, goes back to the beginning. Christ is the one who is sufficient for all of our needs. Because even the First Corinthians 15, by the way, feels like a bit of a, a slightly random, mm-hmm. rhapsodic, you know, sort of beautiful thing about the resurrected body. It's actually dealing with an issue. They're denying the resurrection. And they, they're, if they're denying the resurrection and the, and the importance of the body, then why not go have a prostitute, right? So it's actually a very pastoral issue he's dealing with. But he lands on this the glory that we're heading toward. And so that's a nice final conclusion to your First Corinthians Bible study. Land there. Where's where's the sting of death? As you're discipling people through this letter in all of its complexity, um, the thrust, as we've mentioned, is drawing us together in unity. And so the beautiful thing about the resurrection chapter and where it ends is that even in our current suffering, death all around us, uh, the perishability that we all face and whatever suffering any person is bringing to that Bible study, where you land is celebrating that we together are heading to a particular place, that victory is going to swallow up whatever suffering. we United to Christ, this is our great hope so that we can sing together even in the midst of suffering. Well, Dr. Lanier, thank you so much for helping us teach First Corinthians. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition, sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books, and Tracts. Learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.